Greetings, everyone. Welcome to another exciting episode of the China History Podcast. Laszlo Montgomery here, bringing you the second part of our Han Dynasty overview. We're still in the Western Han, or former Han period, as it's also referred to. We left off in 180 BC with the Liu clan disturbance, where all the relatives of Empress Liu were unceremoniously yanked from all their various positions of power and killed. Empress Liu was the wife of the Han Dynasty founder Liu Bang, who later became the Han Emperor Gaozu. Since it was the Liu clan that started the dynasty, the successive emperors all had to be surnamed Liu, not Liu. The Liu clan disturbance is the first of many such disturbances to follow, where the deceased emperor's empress tries to usurp the throne for her family. So, the country suffers this trauma, but they bounce back and have quite a golden time, and in today's podcast, we'll look at the Han, oh, maybe all the way up to 8 AD, to the end of the Western Han. Then, next time, we'll look at Wang Mang and the Xin Dynasty before we pick up the Eastern or later Han Dynasty. So, the Liu family took back power from the Liu clan. The third or fourth emperor, depending if you count one of the puppet emperors who ruled during the period of Empress Liu, was another son of Gaozu from one of his concubines. His name was Liu Heng. He had been enfiefed by his father as the Prince of Dai. The Dai state was located near present-day Taiyuan in Shanxi. He had been invited back to the capital to become emperor. Liu Heng thereupon became Empress Han Wendi. This emperor really used the velvet-gloved hand. He was extremely popular with the common people and seemed to have a genuine concern to improve the lives of the people. He ordered amnesties, scaled back harsh laws and corporal punishments. He reduced taxes. In fact, he went as far as to put a 12-year moratorium on agricultural taxes. And this, of course, ushered in an era of prosperity for the farmers. He even put an end to the law that made it a capital offense to criticize the emperor in any way. Han Wendi said, quote, With this law, nobody will dare to speak. How can an emperor hear any criticism if he has made a mistake? This emperor sounds too good to be true. It gets even better. Han Wendi was famous for his frugality. He wore coarse silk garments over the more refined and comfortable costumes that the emperor wore. There was a story about uh, some gift horse that was presented from some officials or other in the palace. They brought the emperor this magnificent horse that could travel a thousand li a day. A li was about a third of a mile. The emperor famously replied, What do I need a horse that can walk a thousand li a day when the most I ever travel is thirty li per day? Afterwards, Han Wendi issued an edict forbidding gifts to the royal court. You had a sort of welfare state created under Wendi. Widows and widowers, orphans and seniors without children were given government assistance in the form of loans or tax breaks. Seniors who had made it to the age of 80 were given not monthly social security checks, but stipends of rice, wine, and meat. And if you were over 90, on top of this you were given extra cloth and cotton. I wanted to mention a system that wasn't created by Emperor Han Wendi, but which did begin under the Han Dynasty and was used effectively under Wendi. This was the Heqin system that essentially called for imperial princesses to be used as pawns and keeping peace with the northern and western barbarians, most notably, of course, the perpetual thorn in the side of the Chinese, known as the Xiongnu. This was a system of princesses for peace. 
the emperor would send one of his daughters to these barbarian lands as peace offerings between the Han emperor and the most powerful Xiongnu chieftain of the time. Many famous stories that we'll look at in another podcast when we focus on particular aspects of each dynasty. The most famous of these Hechin princesses was the princess Wang Zhaojun, who wasn't only a princess of the Hechin system, but was also considered one of the four beauties of China, or Si Da Meinu, Xi Shi, Diao Chan, and Yang Guifei being the other three. I don't want to neglect to mention Emperor Wen's wife, the Empress Dou. She had uh, one of these fascinating lives and, in fact, outlived her husband, the Emperor, and later became an Empress Dowager. Empress Dou, or Dou Huang Ho, was known mostly for her introduction of Taoism to the Han court. She was a strict follower of the philosophy of Lao Tzu. She believed in Wu Wei Er Zhi, or governing by doing nothing. Now, this isn't actually as bad as it sounds. This thinking said that the world operated according to its own natural laws and harmonies. When man tried to go against these harmonies, he was doomed to failure. You had to go with the flow. You had to rule in an unsophisticated and simple manner. None of these elaborate rituals and painstakingly complex etiquette. The Taoists were always having it out with the Confucianists, as both schools of thought flowered during the reign of the successive Han emperors Wen, Jing, and Wu. The Taoists were always arguing with the Confucianists, who were extremely rigid in their thought, and especially with all the rituals. Empress Dou had a great influence on her son, who succeeded Emperor Wen as Han Jing Di. The Dao De Jing was the most treasured text during this time. Han Wen Di's brief 12-year reign of 180 to 168 BC brought a period of much-needed stability to China. It didn't last long, of course. By 157 BC, this fine emperor died at the young age of 45. This was, of course, after very strict instructions about how his tomb had to be made in a certain way that didn't present too much hardship or cost to build, and he declared the people need not have any disruption in their lives during the period of mourning for the emperor. Emperor Hanwen Di's reign saw in 165 BC the introduction of the civil service exams that many of you have heard of. This was the forerunner of the annual process of imperial civil service exams that tested promising students from around the country who, if successful, would participate in the public administration of the country. The class of scholar-bureaucrats who were integral to China all the way up to the last dynasty had its earliest roots in this period. Nowadays it doesn't exist, but the ghost of these civil service exams can still be seen in the annual college entrance exams Chinese students face to see who gets into the best universities. So, Han Wen Di passes from the scene in 157 BC, and he is followed by his son, who would become Emperor Jing. His mother was Empress Dou. Jing Di ruled for 16 years until 141 BC. His reign is remembered, among other things, for the Rebellion of the Seven States in 157 BC. Right after he took over power, he faced this crisis to the imperial throne. Now, remember, he was heavily influenced by his Taoist mother and ruled using this kind of upbringing in the philosophy of Lao Tzu. Like his father Wen Di, he continued the policy of distancing himself from the old Qin legalist ways. He continued to lower taxes and reduce the severity of punishments for various crimes. He also continued the practice of He Qin, which kept peaceful relations with the Xiongnu. 
So, Jing Di's reign was defined, among other events, by the Qi Guo Zhiluan, or the Rebellion of the Seven States. This was a rebellion against the central Han authority by the Seven States, each led by a prince of the Liu clan. Yes, these were the same Liu's as Liu Bang, who we looked at in the last podcast. When Liu Bang was busy consolidating his power and trying to keep the peace, he set his family relatives up in these kingdoms and replaced those who had, by their acts, displayed a certain amount of disloyalty to Liu Bang, who had reigned as the Emperor Gaozu. So all these Liu's are set up as princes out in the lands beyond the capital in Chang'an. Everything's fine, of course, while the Gaozu Emperor is alive, but once he's gone, the bonds of fealty get more and more diluted until now, and... These seven states decide at that moment in 157 BC that now was the time to reassert themselves and become independent of the Han Emperor. During the time of Han Wendi, they minted their own coins, collected taxes, and were given so much freedom that it's really no wonder that these seven states decided to just take this to the finish line. This rebellion only lasted a few months in Toto. It all started with the Jing Emperor, Han Jingdi, and his trusted number one advisor, Chao Cuo. Chao Cuo had put a bug in the emperor's ear that if they didn't strike now against these princes, especially the prince of the rich Wu state in Jiangsu, they would rebel anyway. So better to strike now rather than wait to be struck. To light the fuse, the emperor instituted a series of laws that essentially enforced all kinds of restrictions and laws from the past that the princes all these years had ignored and weren't going to follow now. This had the effect that was expected, and the Wu state rose up, and six other principalities also joined in the fray. It was one bloody battle after another, and in no time at all, Emperor Jing got cold feet, and in order to appease the Wu prince, he executed Chao Cuo and Chao's entire family. Chao had been looked upon, especially by Liu Pi, as the black hand behind all these attempts to curtail their power. Liu Pi had convinced the frightened Emperor Jing that all he had to do was execute Chao Cuo, and he'd call off the rebellion. So even after he did this, the rebellion continued, and Han Jing Di had to come up with a plan B. So he called the reliable and loyal General Zhou Yafu. General Zhou set out from Chang'an and in a matter of time managed to bring an end to the rebellion. One by one, the princes capitulated, and the last one to go was the Prince of Zhao, with its capital in Handan. Three months is all it took. Once this rebellion was over, Han Jingdi took various measures to weaken these vassal states and assert central control over these once quasi-independent states. And pretty much from here on out, the idea of a China as a unified state, rather than a collection of small independent states, begins to get a little traction. General Zhou Yafu, later in 150 BC, became Han Jingdi's chancellor. And despite his good background, he proved to be a very unpopular figure at court. The drama going on behind the scenes at the court of the Jing Emperor is something we might have to come back to one day for a special podcast. There was an incredible amount of jockeying for position among the concubines to get their son named as Jing Di's heir. It's as well documented as it is complicated and well worth looking closely at another day. Zhou Yafu got entangled in this mess and made some rather unpopular decisions. He disagreed with Han Jingdi on a number of sensitive matters and in time lost favor with the emperor. 
you know, if you read Sima Chen's account of all this, he just goes on and on and on in very vivid detail about all the back and forth and backstabbing and colluding in his shiji. This was the time in Chinese history that Sima Qian actually lived. So, of course, the detail about this time and arguably the reliability of everything he wrote and the records of the grand historian theoretically should be somewhat accurate. 147 BC, Zhou Yafu commits suicide after he gets hopelessly caught up in accusations and wrong maneuvers. This reflected very badly on Emperor Jing, who was blamed for letting this get out of hand and allowing such a good person as Zhou Yafu to die. 141 BC, Han Jingdi dies and is succeeded by his son Liu Che, who becomes Han Wu Di. He had become heir at the age of seven and became emperor in his 16th year. Han Wu Di ruled for more than half a century from 140 to 87 BC. Let's sort of clean up some loose ends with Jingdi and then we'll get to the succession. Han Wu Di, of course, is considered one of the greatest emperors. After the relatively peaceful and very prosperous reigns of Wen Di and Jing Di, the Han reached the height of its power and territorial expansion during the reign of Han Wu Di. Confucianism reached new peaks with his patronage. He was a great patron of the arts and of learning, but his reign is mostly defined by endless wars, and we'll look at them in a minute. Well, this is Sima Qian's curtain call. The Shiji, or Records of the Grand Historian, was started by Sima's father, Sima Tan, in 109 BC during the reign of Han Wu Di. You know, Han Wu Di, he's really considered by many to be China's most famous emperor. China practically doubled in size during his reign. The Silk Road, which served as not only a trade route between two of the great empires of the day, Rome and the Han, but also served as a byway in which uh, ideas, innovations, culture, and legends were passed back and forth between East and West. Han Wu Di lived in magnificent splendor and utterly rejected his grandfather Wen Di's asceticism in favor of beautiful silks and sumptuous living. He had this thing for immortality like Qin Shi Huang and was always keeping an eye open for that elusive elixir of life. He established a sort of Confucian academy and proclaimed that all aspiring scholars who wished to climb the Chinese imperial version of the Cursus Anorum would need to master the teachings found in the Confucian classics. From this point forward, Confucianism provided the ideological framework of the government and the bureaucracy. The easiest way up to the top, of course, was an aristocratic background, but by the end of the Han Dynasty and beginning with Han Wu Di, this Confucianist-flavored government managed by an army of Confucian-trained scholar officials was starting to take root. Sima Qian was himself a great Confucian scholar at the court, and it was Han Wu Di who requested his father to write the 30 chapters that make up the Shiji. So this moment where the fabric of the imperial government and everything connected to it from Han Wu Di forward is woven with Confucian yarn, so to speak. The great sage really becomes the great sage, and memorizing everything he wrote and being able to regurgitate it at these periodic exams was really the only way to get a shot at becoming a government official. And in those days, they used to say, which basically meant the road to riches was a government post. And you know what that meant. 
Han Wu Di left quite a positive legacy with respect to practical public works and investments in dikes along the Yellow River, as well as the construction of a canal connecting the Great River with the capital at Chang'an. There were no major floods for 80 years since Han Wu Di called for these improvements. Just as the first emperor had the ultimate right-hand man in Li Si, so did Han Wu Di in Dong Zhongshu. Dong was the most instrumental in promoting Confucianism in the government. He was a great scholar and was quite influential in promoting officials based on their Confucian virtues. Since antiquity, China has led the world in constructing the most intricate and elaborate timekeeping and astronomical devices. So I wanted to tell you about one luxury watch brand, Atelier Wen. They demonstrate high-quality Chinese design and craftsmanship in a single timepiece. And their watches celebrate Chinese culture and craftsmanship. Atelier Wen works with China's best designers and craftsmen of today to bring their collection of beautiful luxury watches proudly made in China. Atelier Wen's perception watch model draws from the exquisite geometries found in traditional Chinese architecture. Each dial is individually hand-cut by China's only Gioche master craftsman, Cheng Yutsai, who engineered his rose engine machine himself. Due to its complexity, it takes a master craftsman around eight hours to cut one dial. And there were no Gioche machines in China before, and Master Chung had to figure out how to build one without access to any Western prototypes or drawings. Check out AtelierWen.com to view their collections and to learn more about Chinese watchmaking. You can mention the CHP at checkout to let them know we sent you. That's A-T-E-L-I-E-R-W-E-N.com to see their impressive collections. The Atelier Wen Perception Watch will make a special gift for yourself or for someone passionate about fine, unique watches. Han Wu Di went down in history, among other things, as the Martial Emperor. I suppose his exhausting wars are what most defines Han Wu Di. In fact, the character Wu in his name means martial or military, and Di, of course, means emperor. So Han Wu Di, the Martial Emperor, that name certainly defined him. You know, a lot of these names of these emperors are posthumous names. They're given to the emperor after he dies, and that name would be carefully decided, and that's how the emperor would go down in history. Not in all cases, but most, like Han Wu Di, are all known by their posthumous names. So there were quite a few wars during his five-decade reign as emperor. Like I said, China doubled in size under Han Wu Di, but at what price is still debatable. If there were two things you could say that defined Han Wu Di would be his wars and his expansion and consolidation of power of the central authority over the inhabited territories. Now, you've heard me mention the Xiongnu in a number of podcasts. They were Turkic-speaking nomads from the north of civilized China all the way west to Xinjiang and Central Asia. The Xiongnu were not to be taken lightly, and I plan to focus on them in a future podcast and look at their history as it relates to the Chinese. Now, by the time of the Han, the rulers had figured out that if they just paid tribute to the Xiongnu, sent them gobs of silk and precious objects and gold and the occasional beautiful princesses, the Xiongnu pretty much kept the pillaging to a minimum. This was the system that developed over time until after it was recognized it was better to pay them off with tribute rather than fight them. Han Wu Di, he had a better idea. 
Using shock and awe tactics, he would drive them back so far to the west that they would be too distant to do any damage to the heartland of China. 133 BC, Han Wu Di launches the wars against the Xiongnu to deal with this millennium-old issue once and for all. There were seven military campaigns over the period of ten years. Some met with failure, most met with success. If he was able to push them back a few hundred miles, he would quickly settle the land and occupy it with Chinese from the east of the country. The old Arab proverb, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, really would have meant something to Han Wu Di, because he came up with this idea to ally himself with the Yuezhi people, enemies of the Xiongnu who had defeated them and dominated them. The Yuezhi were a Central Asian people. Han Wu Di wrote a letter to the Yuezhi leader promising to, in essence, take care of them and put them under the Chinese umbrella if they would just help them defeat the Xiongnu. And the man he entrusted with this letter was one of the great adventurers of world history, not just the history of China. He was Zhang Qian, and I'm not going to spoil it here by getting into the specifics of Zhang Qian's amazing life. For sure, we'll do a special episode just on Zhang Qian one day. 138 BC, Zhang Qian departs on his mission with a caravan of 100 men. Well, in no time at all, he gets captured by the Xiongnu and actually ends up living amongst them, marrying one of their women and had a son. But after nine years or so, he escaped and continued westward to finish his mission. He ended up finding the Yuezhi, and they said basically thanks, but no thanks, as they had given up the nomadic lifestyle and had settled into towns that had become somewhat prosperous. So Zhang Qian starts heading back for Chang'an to give the bad news to the emperor. He was captured a second time by the Xiongnu and was waylaid for about a year before he escaped again and arrived back in the capital. Xiongnu wife and son in tow. In 126 BC, some 12 years after he had first departed on this mission. The mission was a failure in that Han Wu Di didn't get his alliance with the Yuezhi, but Zhang Qian brought back amazing tales and accurate descriptions about the lands way, way out to the west and all the trade that was carried out and how much demand there was for Chinese goods and how the whole trade thing worked. On this first trip, he had made it as far west as the Caspian Sea, where Persia and Bactria were located. Edibles such as grapes, peaches, and pomegranates, and many other strange foods not available in China, found their way to the court of the emperor. Han Wu Di was the first Chinese leader to face this truly significant and utterly surprising idea of these distant lands, perhaps as advanced and innovative as China. Up until Zhang Qian came back to Chang'an with the news, it had been thought in Han Dynasty China that theirs was the only truly civilized place in the whole world that existed and that had a writing system and organized government with cities and towns. How to handle this? Initially, the emphasis was on trade and how to supply these distant markets and also how to get these goods from the West that had demand in China. It literally was a matter of whole new worlds opening up. And nobody was invading anybody. This was all just peaceful trade, at least for now. Silk was all the rage in the Roman Empire and during the Republic. Although Caesar, Augustus, and Tiberius hardly knew their counterparts in Chang'an, the silk trade between Rome and China was immense and was mostly paid for in gold. 
This indirect silk trade between Rome and China was the first link between East and West and proved to be the inspiration behind the founding and the development of the Silk Road. The silkworm, of course, had been domesticated during the Shang period, and the quality and fineness of Zhou Dynasty silk is well documented. But it was by the time of the Han that the silk production reached new heights and became such a worldwide sensation like it did. Han Wudi's generals had good luck in Western Korea and were successful in conquering them, but in the opposite direction, complete victory over the Xiongnu remained elusive. In 104 and 91 BC, the Chinese came up short in their battles with the Xiongnu. Nonetheless, through an effective combination of alliances, sustained military pressure, and good old espionage and intrigue, the Xiongnu grew weakened to the point where after Han Wu Di, they were hardly the fierce foe they used to be. By 51 BC, their collapse was complete, and never again were they to rise to be the menace that they had been for so many centuries. The areas of China that had always been independent and separate from any maps of the Chinese Empire also fell to the Han central authority. This included the areas of present-day Fujian in the southeast and Guangdong in the south. Southern Yue, or Nan Yue, as the region was called, had been a kingdom that had bowed to no one and had remained fiercely independent from the northern emperor. But after four massive expeditions, by 111 BC, this last holdout of China proper had been defeated after almost a century of independence. The south was then under the Han emperor's control, including Hainan Island and northern Vietnam down to the Red River. These two provinces of China, Fujian and Guangdong, have always been the trading powerhouses of China. When China's economy recently opened up in 1979, these two provinces were the first two to get filthy rich. Why? Well, besides having special economic zones in their provinces, they were in the best spot geographically. The worldwide community of Chinese, if you took a census, most historically came from these two provinces. From their strategic position on the South China Sea, the Han rulers were more efficiently able to carry out trade with the kingdoms who thrived during that period, including India and what are now the nations of Vietnam, Indonesia, Malaysia, and Thailand. By bringing these southern areas into the China fold, Han Wu Di was able to control the trade policy and get in on the action and fill the royal treasury. By 89 BC, after 32 years of non-stop military campaigns, China had reached its greatest heights of expansion. But the treasury was utterly depleted. Realizing his mistake, Han Wu Di took various measures to reduce the suffering of the people whose lives had been negatively affected by all the wars. But he died in 87 BC, and although China's size had more than doubled, the question was, at what cost? So the great Han Wu Di dies, and because he had executed his son, the crown prince, for plotting against him in some supernatural conspiracy, there was no heir waiting in the wings to allow for a peaceful transition. So that only left the alternative, which was a complicated transition. He was succeeded by his eight-year-old son, who reigned as Zhao Di, Emperor Zhao now, Han Wu Di sired him when he was already 62, and there were plenty of brothers who came before him. So it was one of those times of conspiracies and trying to get rid of this boy emperor. The boy emperor Zhao, well, he died at the age of 21 in 74 BC without arranging for an heir. This led to the 27-day reign of Chang'e Wang He, or Prince He of Chang'e, 
Huo Guang, who served faithfully from Han Wu Di's reign and into this troubled period, served as regent. Huo Guang and all the machinations of the Huo family during this time might be another good topic for uh, a future podcast. This 27-day emperor, in short, wasn't any good, and Huo Guang, in the interests of the state, arranged for him to be deposed. He was replaced by Xuan Di, Emperor Xuan. He had three emperors now, Xuan, Yuan, and Cheng. Xuan was the grandson of Han Wu Di. He reigned from 74 to 49 BC, a respectable 25 years. Yuan and Cheng combined was another 41 years and took us up to 7 BC. This period gave the empire a breather from all the wars of Han Wu Di. Measures were taken to give everyone a break and all kinds of various ways governments do. Less taxes, less conscription, etc. But the Han had peaked, and by the time Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the Han was decidedly going downhill. Thanks to the Xiongnu being defanged by this time, and the prevailing reluctance to get embroiled in any foreign wars or disturbances, things were rather quiet during these final decades of the Western Han. Now, Emperor Yuan, who I just mentioned, uh, he had a consort named Empress Wang. Wang Zhengjun, she had incredible staying power. She lived from 71 BC to 13 AD, just shy of 85 years. She was incredibly powerful during the time of her husband, Yuan Di, when he was emperor, and then when her son became emperor, her two step-grandsons, and her step-great-grand-nephew. Emperor Cheng was uh, her son. As I mentioned, these last oh, say, ten decades of the Han were very messy with endless battles for power within the imperial court. Now, Empress Wang, she had a half-brother who had a son, which made this boy her nephew. His name was Wang Meng. He naturally worked in the government, and thanks to his aunt's connections, he became regent for the nine-year-old Emperor Ping, who reigned from 1 BC to 5 AD. By this time, the Han rulers of the Liu family were in serious decline, and the Wangs, they were on the ascension. The Wangs, led by Wang Mang, they prevailed in the end, uh, despite all the conspiracies and whatnot and attempts to get rid of them. Yet one last emperor of the Western Han, and that honor fell upon Emperor Wu Ying, Ying the Kid. He took us from 6 AD to 9 AD, and nothing much to say about him, except that he was basically a puppet of Wang Mang, and uh, his claim to fame might be that he was the one that Wang Mang actually deposed, which spelled the end of the Western Han Dynasty. So in 9 AD, no more Liu's. Now you have a new clan with ultimate power, the Wangs. And Wang Mang, he declared an end to the Han Dynasty and the beginning of the Xin, and Xin means new. And we're going to pick up next week with Wang Mang in his 14-year reign as emperor until he is himself deposed violently, and you have a restoration of the Liu clan again, which ushers in the Eastern Han Dynasty. So we're going to stop here and pick up next week with Wang Mang. What else is there to say? Wang Mang, he went down in history as the great usurper. He usurped the throne. Usurp, of course, means to seize power without the legal right to do so. So... Please join us next week, won't you? We'll examine the 14-year uh, reign of Wang Mang, and he, of course, was the one and only emperor of the Xing dynasty. You know, after he's killed in 23 AD, the Han returns as the Eastern Han this time and lasts uh, till 220 AD. And I'm telling you, until 581 AD, it's a real roller coaster in China. But we'll just keep plodding along like we've been doing since we started this overview with you, the Great, Tamer of the Floods, back in the Xia Dynasty. 
So, most of this show has been written at Shea Montgomery in quaint and quintessentially American Claremont, California, but I'm recording this from the 11th floor of the Hyatt Regency, an exciting Jim Sajay, Kowloon in Hong Kong. It's 3 in the morning here, or 12 noon back home. If you want a copy Rolex watch, this is the place. I'm here for the next 10 days, so don't hold me in too much contempt, I beg you, if the next show is a few days late. So, take care, everybody. <laughs>